In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in as the same way that you saw him going into heaven. Well, good morning, Covenant. It's good to see everyone this morning, and I, I hope that you do plan to come to the, uh, the missions dinner uh, next Sunday night. Uh, it's just a great time that we have as we get to interact with our missionaries and we eat some good food and fellowship with one another. Hey, uh, back, I guess, you know, end of August, middle of August, I told you a video was coming. And I thought that video was going to be coming around the first week or so of August, but it got delayed because of uh, technical matters with the, within the building uh, committee and just finalizing a few bits of information. But you should receive a video link by email near the end of this week. I want to encourage you to watch it, okay? Write down any questions that this video raises in your mind and that you want answered, and then we will be organizing small group meetings. We're looking at maybe doing some after-church brown bag. You know, you brown bag it, and we'll get 20 of us in a room with myself or a building committee person or another elder and a building committee person and answer questions that no doubt this video will maybe raise in your mind. But I think you're going to be excited about what you see. You will finally get to see the facility that this committee has worked so hard with an architect to design, and uh, I think you're going to love it. It's going to knock you off your... Uh, knock you off your feet. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing your reactions or hearing about your reactions. So look for that email. If you don't get our emails, check with Andrea at the end of the service and make sure that we have you in our system. Well, last week, we opened up a, a ministry theme for the year. Ministry theme is transitions, right? Transitions, a study in the book of Acts. Acts is all about transitions. Why transitions? Because we all go through transitions on a continual basis in our lives. You know, our children are transi transitioned from one school to another, and there's always anxiety when that happens, right? Elementary to middle school alone or junior high is an anxiety time as they transition. We transition from one job to another job. From one city to another city, we transition from the state of being unmarried to the state of being married, Daniel, next weekend, right? All right, amen, right? And then we, some of us, we, through death or divorce, we transition from married to unmarried, right? 
Uh, we, we have all kinds of transitions. We have our children, we're raising them. Then we go through the incredibly uh, debt-ridden years of paying college tuition. And then we finally transition out of that horror into being empty nesters and grandparents, right? We transition all the time. But here's the thing about transitions and change like this, right? It oftentimes creates fear in our hearts. Change just brings fear. We, and where fear is, the door is open to the enemy to wreak havoc in our lives. So transitions become temptations for us to sometimes give in to the deeper idolatries of our hearts, turn to those idolatries for maybe comfort in that season of anxiety and fear or security or significance. Because transitions, where times of change are occurring, we are being called from the known to the unknown. Transitions are times where God is stretching us and he's calling us to trust him and to walk by faith. Now, Luke makes the center point of his two volumes, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts, and the book of Acts, he makes a doozy of a transition, the center point of those two volumes, right? We saw this last week, the ascension. It's hard to, to beat the ascension for dramatic effect, right? Jesus is there. He's interacting with the disciples for 40 days. He's teaching them. He's instructing them. He's proving to them that he is the risen Messiah. And then one day as they are out on the Mount of Olives, he just ascends on the clouds to God. And they're standing there looking, wondering what's going on. Is he coming back when angels appear and tell him, you know, get on out of here, you know, go do what Jesus told you. I mean, what an incredible transition transition to open up the book of Acts, which is all about transitions for the people of God and the church of God. And in that transition, we saw last week that rather than fear them, we should embrace them because transitions are often those opportunities where we can experience the presence and the power of God more vividly. We don't need to run from them. We don't need to be afraid of change and transition in our lives. Instead, see it for what it is, an opportunity to know God more and more intimately. And certainly, that's my prayer for our church as we go through this transition over the next 18 months as we move, build new facilities, move out of this facility and begin doing ministry a couple of hundred yards to the south, that our experience will be that we draw closer to God, that we see God pour out his power in our church in a fresh way, in a new way, that he will do things that at the end of the 18 months, we all smile and we recognize that God has been going before us and leading us and guiding us and working through us for his glory. Well, this week, we're going to return to this, these opening verses because we didn't get everything out of them last week that we needed. There's a lot here, but these verses are important. They set the stage for the rest of the book of Acts. In fact, verse 8 can very much be seen as an outline for the entire book of Acts. You know, where in the first eight chapters or so, the focus of the ministry is Jerusalem. And then you see the next few chapters being Judea and Samaria. And then the last roughly half of the book is the gospel being extended to the uttermost parts of the earth, as Jesus says in verse eight. There's a lot here to mind this morning, and hopefully we can connect some dots for us that will help us better understand not only the book of Acts, 
but our own place within the kingdom of God and the overarching storyline of the Bible. In a moment, I want us to answer the question of how Jesus' instructions in verse 8 connect us to the kingdom of God and to the promise of the Holy Spirit. But the first thing we need to do is return to the ascension. We need to look into the ascension a little bit more closely and, and answer the question, what is that relationship between the ascension of Jesus and the kingdom of God? You know, this last summer, we had a series of messages called Wonderful Words. And one of those words that we looked at was the word kingdom. And we noted how the kingdom of God is often a misunderstood expression in our day. And it is also very much misunderstood by the apostles and by the disciples of Jesus. You get a a hint of this in verse 6 when they ask Jesus, is it now time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, John Calvin, in his commentary on the book of Acts, says, there are almost as many errors in their question as there are words. <laughs> and, and he's right. There really are. quite. A, if you take all the errors that are there, there's quite a few. But they, they kind of break down into three categories. So I'm not going to give you the kingdom sermon from this summer uh, again, but I do just at least want to refresh your memory that when it comes to what the disciples were thinking and what was the common thought of the day, they were making errors in the nature, the timing, and the purpose of the kingdom. The nature, purpose, and timing. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? In their mind, which was a very one-dimensional perspective, the kingdom was limited to a physical realm They had a very physical uh, perspective and paradigm that they were thinking of and looking at things through when it came to the idea of kingdom. It was Israel finally being able to see the the Romans kicked out of their land and and then the monarchy restored and all the promises that were made to David and through the prophets that they would be fulfilled. What they missed was that the kingdom of God is first and foremost a spiritual reality before it ever becomes a physical one. Now, there are certainly the spiritual kingdom of God affects the physical world, and one day we will see the kingdom of God in its fruition in a very physical way. But right now, the kingdom of God is primarily spiritual. The Apostle Paul hits on this in Colossians 1 when he says that the way we have been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son is through the forgiveness of our sins, the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Entrance into the kingdom of God is a spiritual entrance first, and the kingdom of God is therefore spiritual primarily. Will you restore the kingdom of God at this time? There's a timing issue with the disciples. And Jesus answers this in verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons. He uses two different words that are related to time and calendars. He uses the word chronos or chronoi, right? In other words, it is not up for you to know the events the sequencing of what is about to happen. It is not for you to know the seasons, the the epics of history, the movements of history, the historical events that are going to occur first before the kingdom of God. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own 
authority. You see, the, the disciples, when it came to timing, and, and you can understand why they would think this, they thought that, okay, the kingdom's about to happen. And why would they think this? Because they had all of these promises in the Old Testament, and Jesus had been teaching and proclaiming the kingdom for more than three years. And if you look back at the Old Testament, there's this idea that, that there's going to become this Messiah. And the Messiah, once he came, he would establish this golden age on the earth where the lion will lay down with the lamb and, you know, all those verses that are in the end of Isaiah. And so in the apostles' minds, and you can't blame them, right? They were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. Why wouldn't they be convinced? They were touching the risen Lord, right? They knew this was God's son. This was the one. This is the Christ. He's the one who's going to bring about the kingdom. He's risen from the dead. He's, he's done all, fulfilled all of the prophecies. Now where's the kingdom? And I understand why they were looking for it like that. I can get it. If I was in their shoes, I would probably be making the same mistake, right? But what they didn't understand was that the kingdom isn't something that was in the future after Jesus, you know, came and ministered and died. And as many people even today, I saw it on Instagram this week. I love uh, Dr. Dr. David Jeremiah is a wonderful man of God. He proclaims the word of God faithfully and has for decades, right? We never speak ill of him in any way, shape, or form. But when it comes to the matter of the kingdom, I think he's off base. In his Instagram ad this week, he was advertising a book that you should buy. And it was all about, you know, is the current debt crisis, is the, is the thing that's happening in the United States today, is the, the, the dissension that's in the world, the rise of China, are these all signs? And this is what the advertisement said. Are these all signs that the kingdom of God is about to come? Okay. In other words, the kingdom is something in the future. And that's the mistake that they were making. You know, Jesus made this very clear in the book of Luke. In chapter 17, when he's talking to the Pharisees and to the disciples, and they're asking him questions about the kingdom, and he says to them, if somebody comes to you and says, the kingdom is about to come, or the kingdom is over here, or the kingdom is in this person, don't believe them because the kingdom is already in the midst of you. Okay, the kingdom of God isn't something future. The kingdom of God has already been inaugurated. Jesus inaugurated it at his first advent. He is going to bring it to consummation at his return and the second coming of Christ between the ascension and the second coming of Christ. This kingdom of God is growing and continuing to build. It is present in its current reality and in the beginnings of the kingdom, but it is future and what it will ultimately look like and its perfect fulfillment. So they were wrong about the nature. They were wrong about the timing. They were wrong about the purpose. Is it now the time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? The idea that the kingdom is all about the nation of Israel and a land, and in their case, defeating the Romans or in theological systems that it's all about the nation of Israel and the government of today. This is not what the scriptures are teaching us at all. It's not about the restoration of a nation state church. It's about a, the restoration of the entire world. It's about the restoration of creation and the universe. The, the view that the disciples had was too small. It was too myopic. They need a grander vision of what Jesus is about. He's making all things new in all of creation. And that bigger scope of the kingdom 
is alluded to in verse eight, when he says, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the filling of the Holy Spirit and be my witnesses in Israel, and now you're done. No, of course not. It's the uttermost parts of the earth. The scope of God's kingdom is worldwide, and it's right here in Acts chapter one. So before we can ever understand the importance of the ascension to the kingdom of God, church, it kind of, you know, is obvious. We need to have a right perspective on the kingdom of God. If we have a wrong perspective on the kingdom of God, we are not going to understand the importance of the ascension and the role that it plays. I mean, to be clear about it, from the way I understand scripture, really the storyline of the entire Bible in one way or another is centered on the kingdom of God. You can almost say it's the overarching theology. It's the meta-theology of the Bible, the kingdom of God, that God is the king of everything and everything belongs to him, including us. And throughout history, throughout the Bible and the stories and the events and the books of the Bible, God is working to bring about and establish his kingdom in his creation. But because of the fall, we are obstacles to this. Humanity resists and we rebel and we reject the lordship and sovereignty of God every opportunity we can in our natural state as human beings. And so in the Old Testament, God makes it clear because of humanity's sinfulness that God declares that he will exercise his kingship over every person, even the most rebellious heart, over every nook and cranny of this universe, he will reign over everything, all the events of history, all the circumstances of life, over every single being, human being, and he's going to do this through his chosen king, the Messiah. You know, every Christmas, right? We read this, we just don't, obvious, we don't always recognize it. Again, kingdom of God, storyline of the Bible, Isaiah chapter nine, we read these verses and we, we kind of, I think, just miss how this speaks to this reality. But now that we're talking about it, notice it. I think you'll see it. For to us, a child is born. Familiar words, right? We read it every Christmas. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called what? Wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father. We, we, man, we can just rattle that off of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his what? Kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Understanding this great story of the kingdom of God, it's critical. It helps us to understand and put perspective on the ascension. It also helps us to understand what it is that Jesus is doing right now. It shines light on the current ministry of Jesus. In our, in our covenant group this, this week, I ask our uh, members, what is Jesus doing right now? How would you answer that question? Think about that for a second. What is Jesus doing right now? What's your answer? Turn to the person next to you. What, what came into your mind? What popped into your mind? What is Jesus doing right now? I wonder how many of you are going, uh. All right, how many of you had an answer? Raise your hand. 
How many of you? Okay, good, good. All right. How many of you, your answer had something to do with, you know, he's interceding for us. He's advocating for us. Raise your hand. All right. Some of you were actually listening last week. Congratulations. Most of you apparently were not. Okay, that's all right. It's okay. All right, we, we touched on that last week. You know, my group has got really intelligent people in it. They went there. They, they said, in, in interceding and advocating, they got it, right? Yes, the, the priestly role of Jesus. We looked at that last week. Hebrews chapter four, he intercedes, opens up the throne room of God. John in 1 John 2, he advocates for us because we're still sinners, but we are under the blood of Christ and he advocates, he represents us before God. And incredible priestly ministry of Jesus. We shouldn't overlook that. That's what he's doing right now, but that's not all that he's doing right now. In fact, uh, maybe one way of seeing it is the most quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old Testament speaks to what Jesus is doing right now. The most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. What book of the Bible do you think it comes from? Shout it out. I heard a quiet psalm, not exactly a shout. Uh, and I heard most of y'all just looking at me because you didn't want to give the wrong answer. That's okay. This person over here was right. Good job. The most quoted verse in the Bible doesn't come from Isaiah. A lot of people think Isaiah, maybe Isaiah 53. It's Psalm. It's Psalm 110, verse 1. And, and the passage from one Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the most quoted verse in the Old Testament in the New Testament. The Lord, notice how that's all capital letters, the Lord there, right? It's hard to see maybe on the screen, but in your Bible, it'll be all, in other words, Yahweh. In the Hebrew, that's the word for Yahweh. Yahweh says to Adonai, God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In the ancient world, when a, a king was conquered by another king, that conquering king would bring him before his throne and have him kneel before him and maybe at a lower, and he, and he would put his feet on his neck to indicate who had the power and who had been defeated. And so God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies bow at your feet so you can rest your feet on their neck, right? That verse, that verse, it's important. And we're gonna see it in Acts chapter two when Peter preaches his sermon after the falling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, 10 days after the ascension, Peter will quote this verse at the climactic point of his sermon to the very people who crucified Jesus. This is what he says to them. This Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and here's our verse, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ or Messiah, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So what is Jesus doing right now? What is he doing as he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, he is fulfilling those priestly responsibilities and that role, but he's also fulfilling the kingly role. What is Jesus doing right now? He is reigning as 
king over everything. The Father has placed everything under the Son. It is Jesus who is making all things new. It is Jesus who is restoring creation and undoing the consequence of the fall. How is he doing this? What does this rule look like? You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes in that great passage about the resurrection, Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come. You wanna know about the end? Here we get to it. After that, the end will come when he, Jesus, will turn the kingdom over to God the Father having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. What is Jesus doing right now? He is defeating all of his enemies. And when he is done defeating the very last enemy, the last of which is death itself, but all of the other enemies, when they are all defeated, he will then turn to the Father and he will present the perfect consummated kingdom to him. And so shall we ever be with the Lord as he then makes all things new and we pass into eternity. What is Jesus doing right now? He's taking care of all those who are his enemies. Who are his enemies? Well, certainly, we know Satan is his enemy, right? He's the great enemy of our soul, the Bible tells us. We know that the enemies go into the, the, the princes and the principalities and the powers of this worldly system and the spiritual realm who we don't see, but they are real and they are evil and they work for evil ends. And Jesus is defeating them. Certainly, Jesus is going to defeat ultimately, as he says here in 1 Corinthians 15, sin and death. But the enemy that we often don't think of and don't immediately recognize looks a whole lot like us, like you and me, and like our neighbors, and like our family members, and like our coworkers, and our fellow Rivardians, if that's a word, our fellow Americans, fellow humans around the globe, everyone who rejects Jesus. And we're all born this way. Here's the truth of the gospel, the bad news of the gospel. We are all born enemies of Jesus Christ. Every one of us. We love sin. We choose self over Christ. We worship ourselves rather than God. We rebel, we resist, we worship our, our own way, and we will continue to do this unless Jesus intervenes and defeats us. Paul says in Romans chapter five that this is what every Christ follower has experienced. They have experienced being defeated by Jesus. Here he says in verse nine, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. For while we were what? One more time, while we were what? Enemies. That's how we start life. For if while we were enemies, 
We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, now that we are the sons and daughters of God, shall we be saved by his life. This is what Jesus is doing. It's conquering enemies. And the enemies, the most basic fundamental level are fellow human beings, you and me. So how about you this morning? Are you an enemy that needs to be conquered and defeated? Or are you an enemy who's been overcome and defeated and now been changed into a brother and sister of Christ? That's the two categories. You either are an active enemy or you were an enemy who's been defeated and now you're reconciled and you are a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. That's the two categories. Which one are you? Which one are you? Amen. And you know, if you can't say that confidently, I hope that you'll come see me this week. I hope after the service, you'll, you'll just come to me and say, hey, can we grab lunch? And I'll know what you mean. What you mean is I'm not certain that I've been reconciled to God. I'm not certain that I'm not still an enemy. And I wanna know more. Come, come talk to me after the service. Come to our care area. We have Stephen ministers and we have pastors. We're happy to talk to you about this. This question right here. Are you an enemy or has Jesus overcome your rebellion and your resistance to God and transformed you into a brother and sister in Christ who is ready to be received into his kingdom? Which one are you? Well, most of you I know here this morning, you have followed Christ. You've been conquered. You're in the family of God. You've been reconciled to God. This passage has something to say to us that we need to think about as it relates to the promise of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God in verse eight. We need to answer that question, how Jesus's instructions in verse eight connect us to the kingdom and to the promise of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned to you earlier that the kingdom of God is the overarching storyline of the Bible. You see this at the end of the Bible. You see this on the very first page of the Bible. In Genesis chapter one, verse 27, this is what we hear. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This this is often called the creation mandate or the cultural mandate, right? And it explains our role in creation. Humanity, unlike all the creatures of this earth, We're created in the image of God. God creates this beautiful universe. He creates this beautiful world in the first three days. And then he goes back and he fills those spaces. He fills it with the sun and the stars and the moon and the planets. He takes this planet and he fills it with uh, birds and fish and animals. And then on that sixth day, he fills it with a man and a woman. Except of course the earth isn't filled, is it? It's just one couple. But the command is to these humans to act as vice regents of all of creation. Under God's authority, they are to fill the earth with the image of God. They're to do this, male and female, through sexual relations as a husband and wife. They're to procreate, they're to have children. And as their children have children and children have children and down and down, they fill the earth with the image of God because humanity has been created in God's image. 
And in that perfect, idealized garden, in that original state, this was how it was to occur. But we know how it ends up happening. Sin mars this. See, the idea there with, in the original was that the image of God, wherever the image of God goes, God goes. And that shows where his kingdom is in the ancient world, right? And we talked about this, I think, back in Genesis 1 last year, that in the ancient world, a king would carve a statue of himself, an image of himself, and he'd have these statues put all around the the land at the farthest reaches of the boundaries of his kingdom, wherever his statue, his image appeared in the land indicated this was his kingdom. And so the idea here is that the image of God would go all across the planet because the planet is his kingdom. It all belongs to him. And sin messed all of that up. Because when Adam and Eve as sinners then had children, those children, this was no longer the perfect, unpolluted, idealized, powerful image of God within humanity that was given to Adam and Eve. Now it's been contaminated by sin. And so... Yes, when we have children, every human being has the image of God planted within them, but that image is tarnished and covered over and obscured because of sin. And so we do not fulfill this creation mandate simply through sexual procreation. Can't happen because of sin. That's why verse eight is still important and so important. It's still humanity's task to fill the planet with the image of God. But it can't happen because of sin through natural means. This is why the kingdom of God is not first and foremost natural and physical. The kingdom of God is first spiritual. Go back to verse 7 and 8. He said to them, If it is not for you, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Verse 8 tells us how this task, this creation mandate, is to be fulfilled. Now, because of sin, it's not through physical procreation is through spiritual regeneration that the kingdom of God spreads. It's through God's people taking on their role. Do you see the connection here? Do you see the connection between the kingdom and between the uh, promise of the Holy Spirit and our role in the kingdom? Our role isn't to be consumed with figuring out the times and the seasons and the events of the second coming of Christ. Verse seven makes that clear, which calls into question all the effort and time and labor that is spent in writing novels and books that deal with prophecy, right? That's not where our time is supposed to be consumed. Our time is is supposed to be consumed with the role that we've been given in verse eight. Our role is to be filled with the Holy Spirit And when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, the natural outcome is to be a witness to Jesus in Palm Bay, Florida, and in Brevard County, and in the state of Florida, and in the United States, and to the other nations of this world. This is our role. As the Holy Spirit moves in us, fills us, if you have given your life to Christ, You, at that moment, have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within you. Jesus lives within you through his Spirit. 
And if you have Jesus within you, you can't help but be a witness to Jesus. That word witness, excuse me, we make a mistake if we think that, oh, so we're all supposed to be super evangelists. That's not what the word witness means here. Um, Some of us have gifts of evangelism, some of us don't. But all of us are called to be witnesses. All of us can tell the people that we interact with who Jesus is and what he's done for us. All of us are able to say, here's why Jesus is important to me. Here's who Jesus is. If you know Jesus, you can tell people about Jesus. You can bear witness. That word witness ultimately is where we get the word martyr from, okay? Doesn't mean that we have to be martyred for Jesus, even though that can happen. It just means that we lay it all at the altar and we tell others about Christ. We witness to him for, about him. And what happens is the Holy Spirit who's within us, he moves through us, he moves through our obedience and people who are currently enemies of God are then overcome by him. They are born again, they're regenerated. He gives them a heart that loves Jesus. And once again, the image of God has spread a little bit further in this earth because of what the Holy Spirit does through Christians who obey him. This is our role with each of those people who we play a role in their lives and they give their lives to Christ, the image of God now appears. And with that image, the kingdom of God expands a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, just as Jesus says it would, like a little bit of yeast that would grow and grow and spread and spread gradually until it ultimately consumes this world. Church, we embrace this calling at covenant. This is part of the DNA of our church. It's in our values. It's in the values of our church in two different places. We talk about being a church that is um, proclaiming the word of God graciously. Why do we do this? Well, this is a quote from J.I. Packer that I wanted to leave you with. It says, in a world of arrogance and, excuse me, go back to the, we'll get this. The task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living and witness bearing. That's our role. That's what verse eight is about. And we capture that in our values when we talk about proclaiming the God, the gospel graciously in a world of arrogance and hypocrisy. We declare the absolute truth of God's word and its message of gospel grace with boldness and kindness. You've heard the gospel this morning. You've heard the bad news of sin and the good news that comes through Jesus Christ. We are a church that won't compromise on this message, church. I don't care how much the culture changes. We're not compromising on this. This is life. This is our life. This is the only hope for our world, for it to be restored and made new. We proclaim it graciously, not as jerks, but as sinners who have found the answer to our need in Jesus Christ. We proclaim graciously. We multiply concentrically. That's a different kind of value. It doesn't make a lot of sense initially, but think of it like this. When you throw a rock in a pond, right? The ripples from that rock spread out in concentric circles. So in a world of hopelessness, we share the good news of the gospel to see people come to know Jesus as Savior across the street, across the tracks, and across the ocean in concentric circles. We start right in our backyard, 
And we, we witness and we tell others and we have ministries in our church that are welcome to all. Anyone can come, Christian, non-Christian, seeker, found, doesn't matter, all are welcome. We carry this out by planting churches in North Brevard and Bayside and Orlando and Tampa throughout Florida. We do it across the world and the Philippines and India and Eastern Europe and Africa and Cuba and South America in concentric circles in a world of hopelessness. We share the good news of the gospel to see people come to know Jesus as savior across the street, across the tracks, and across the ocean. This is part of the DNA of our church. It's part of our vision of seeing 50 by our 50th. It's part of our mission of bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. It is why we spend a week every year doing a missions conference, bringing before us the needs of this community and our world. It is why we give away some of our best people to plant a church seven miles to the north and five miles to the south. It is why we ask you, to take that faith promise card and pray and get involved to whatever degree God would lead you to. Because when God's people surrender themselves and make ourselves available as instruments and channels of grace and channels of the gospel, God does miraculous things to a church that will surrender themselves in this way. May we do this even during a time of incredible transition, right? Heavenly Father, May we press on with the calling that you've given us. We thank you for how you have worked through us, the way you have sanctified us as a church, the way your spirit moves within us to be prompted to obey, to share our own stories. God, make us bolder in this area. As we work our way through the book of Acts, may we be challenged by the boldness of those first disciples who could not stop talking about you, Lord Jesus, and what you had done for them through your Holy Spirit. Give us that same kind of boldness and power we ask. Break down the idols in our hearts that interfere with our witnessing. Help us all who know you, Lord Jesus, to embrace you, to be your witnesses in every opportunity that we're given. And Lord, we think of the one right now who is still maybe an enemy, and you overcome them. May you break them. May they see themselves in need of a Savior even today. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.